Welcome to a new spin on autism. Answers with host and international speaker and performer, Lynette Louise. Besides working on her doctorate in psychophysiology, Lynette has raised eight children, six adopted, and four of them falling somewhere on the autism spectrum. Laugh with her, cry with her, as she talks to both experts and parents and takes you through the often confusing, sometimes frustrating, sometimes overwhelming, but always fascinating world of autism. Hello! Welcome. This is a new spin on Autism Answers. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host. And today is a beautiful Lebanon day. Yes, I said Lebanon. I am also known as the Brain Broad. And so don't forget, if you, if you have trouble finding me and you can't remember my name, you're going, who's that girl? Who's that girl? You can always look up the Brain Broad and you'll find me. I am in Lebanon and we have an exciting show ahead for you today. I am excited, excited, excited to introduce you to a school called FISTA. So I'm very known in the world of parents, as you know parents. Um, I travel all over the world and I work with families and we do lots of really good stuff. But it's really special when I get to work with a school that works with parents. Because sometimes one of the problems we have is our families have trouble with the professionals the educators. And our educators have trouble with the families. So what I really love is that I've found this beautiful place. We're putting neurofeedback in place. We're talking all kinds of concepts. And I, every one of you would want to be here. It's really lovely. It's not just lovely because it's in the mountains and it's gorgeous and the breeze is blowing, but it's lovely because the people are beautiful here. And especially the, what would you call yourself, a dean? Uh, a principal, a president, yeah. an <laughs> owner. <laughs> All right. So I'm not going to chatter on and on and on because I've actually grabbed her from a long day of doing a workshop on neurofeedback. And, and we've been talking and answering questions all day long. We're going to get right to it. But don't forget to stay to the very end of the show where I will do stories from the road. And today I'm going to do the Great Guest Giveaway again because, okay, okay, the Great Guest Giveaway has to happen, even though I don't have somebody with a book to offer up, I don't think. Um, do you have a book? Yeah. You want to offer it for free? It's in Arabic. Oh, it's in Arabic. That's probably not going to work out, guys. Okay, I'll give you something. All right, so without further ado, we have Rim with a very hard-to-pronounce last name, and I am going to get her to tell you who she is and how she came to be the person running this wonderful school. And res it's actually partly residential. They do a summer camp and it's also a school. So it's really exciting. So tell us about you first. Okay, my name is Reem Muawad. Muawad, there I did it. <laughs> Muawad. Yes, and I started working in the special education field in 1993. I did my special education degree and then I did educational psychology and I mainly worked with parents in counseling and then I did my PhD in therapeutic education after following the international Rudolf Steiner curative education methods and the school here is called Step Together FISTA meaning first step together but because it's so complicated so now we're shortening the name it's step together it's an NGO it's a non-profit organization that helps a lot of disadvantaged families and there goes more we have more challenges because when we have these challenges we have the parents who need more help 
So in this way, we have like a community where we try to make it easier for parents to work as a team with the therapists that we have. We have around 14 therapists from OT, speech, psychological, music therapy, rhythmic massage therapy. And we have also a team of uh, coordinators who are co coordinating the sections, uh, meaning by uh, we have students from the age of three till the age of 62 is the eldest. Oh my goodness, that is such a huge gap. So how many do you have in each age group? So in each age group we have around 30, maximum 40 students. I mean, and then later on when they're adults, then it becomes the community where the, the adult comes and works in the workshops. Or if he can move outside the, to the community, this would be also a very important target, independent living skills and uh, uh, more productivity and things like that. So it depends on the case. So they come at three, we have the preschool program, and then we have the school program till the age of 18, and then we have the pre-vocational and then the vocational. Once they graduate, they become working people. So they're either in the adult community field or in the working productive field. Okay, first of all, that's really interesting to me that you're going to make maybe know somebody from the time they're three years old until they're 62, although you're not old enough to know someone from the time they're three until they're 62. But still, that's a long time to be committed to uh, a person, a client, a student, a friend. So how did you decide to have such a big... Let's, let's back up, actually. In the beginning, did you open this school yourself? Did you take it over from no, somebody? No, it was my mother. She's German. She came to Lebanon in 68 when we didn't have war at that time. She's a medical doctor. She's a pediatrician. And she was encouraging mothers, Lebanese mothers, to work. So the first thing was in the, early, in the early 70s to open a kindergarten that was called The Little Prince to encourage working mothers to go and work and put their children in a safe and very stimulating place. And at that time when the war started, some of the special needs came to this kindergarten. And because she ha was a doctor, she started creating a, a diagnostic uh, group of therapists that started to guide the parents, but we didn't have really special education programs. It was until 1993 when we had a very small class of uh, very young children who had difficulties and who the parents, they needed answers. And then we started with this program. In the beginning, we thought we'll only work on very uh, young children. And then uh, they left the kindergarten and then they came back. So okay. the answer came back, no, open, please open other sections. We started with integration, actually. We started going into schools and opening parallel classes in the schools. And it didn't really work much because I think the society here needs a lot of work and the teachers need a lot and the parents. And it, it's... It's not like we can take something that happens in the U.S. in 2015 and apply it uh, uh, here because we, st we are still in the process of learning. If you, if you want to look at the legal issues here, we have a problem with, uh, with the issues that still special education in Lebanon is still regarded as a social affair, not as education. So unless all these 
until all these issues, the legal issues and the, the push of parents to understand more education or therapy. It's changing, but it's taking time. And it's also the level of education of the parents that will also affect this. So, I mean, we are, we are still in the process of uh, becoming more developed, using things that are a new research in the field of special education and going back to what is existing in the country and doing what Rudolf Steiner always says, do what is possible in what exists. So we, have, we are always adapting the situation to the new uh, uh, approaches that we, we, we are convinced that are very important for the special child and how we convince parents about uh, new developments and how we help them also deal with society where this child is still discriminated. And, uh, you know, once I went with a group of special needs to the movies, uh, it was horrible. If, if I would be a mother, it would have been really very difficult for me. But I wasn't a mother, and I could deal with how the people were looking at us. So just looking at you, or do they actually act out? They were looking as if we come from Mars, you know, just as if we are not human beings. And this was really horrible. We, we were just going to see a movie, and they were very nice, the people who were with me. They were the adults with special needs. Actually, the parents have a lot of fear here, and they're not accepted with their children. And I tried to create a community where we love them and we respect them, and where we look at them as human beings. And this is not really happening in a lot of places here. And this is what, what happened, that the, the students getting older and staying here is because they, they need this sense of security. Well, actually, when you think about it, if they're getting stared at in that way, then when they go out of here, they must feel very uncomfortable. Have you ever found yourself sitting there going, wow, what must this feel like to be the person getting stared at? Of course. It's, it's horrible. You know, here, uh, whenever we have the students coming in the buses, everybody's laughing. They are so happy that they, they're here. Once I went to, uh, to a class, one of the students said, no, tomorrow is Saturday. I don't want to go home. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this feeling of acceptance, of being part of a community, of giving each one his right to be respected as a human being is very important. And the parents always say, can you, can you get old with our children? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear that one too. Can you move in? <laughs> okay, so a, a few questions really popped to my mind. Uh, one of them is to help have you help people who don't know anything about your history, about the Lebanese history. So when you say the, the war, if you could help us and give us a little history of sort of the climate and the war and what that was. And then from there, we'll get into a little bit about maybe what Rudolf Steiner is. Okay, the war factor. Unfortunately, we have a war that is never ending. So we have a lot of instability and we don't know when we will have another war. So the people here, they don't really, all of them express their anxieties, but they are anxious and uh, they, they try to hide behind it, uh, pretending that everything is fine and that I'm going out every day or something like this. But actually, of course, if you go and meet a lot of psychiatrists or psychologists here, they would say that the people here have suffered a lot from all the instability, the wars that happened in Beirut, the wars that happened in the mountain, the amount of fear that they experienced when they were young, uh, 
the, we can't plan things. Sometimes we don't have electricity. Sometimes we don't have the, the, the roads are cut. Sometimes we have uh, a bomb somewhere. So this fear, I mean, I think the Lebanese people are adapting well to the situation, but sometimes over-adaptation is also not healthy. Right, right. I'll, I'll tell you my first... Uh vision of Beirut the first time I came, the part that was most fascinating was to see a perfectly intact, beautiful, very rich, glitzy building right next to a bombed out, completely trashed building. And so what I observe in this country is a lot of that. You, you can see the remnants of everything and you can see the valiant attempt to rebuild and to still have a beautiful life. And you can see it in the people too. Does that sound yes. true to you? and we had a, once, it was very funny, we, we always do teacher training and we had a storyteller from Germany. And then where she, when she was sitting, we have the messages on our phones that a bomb happened somewhere. And one of the teachers looked at me and I, I, looked, I looked into the eyes and I, I, as if I said, don't interrupt them now, let them finish the, the workshop. And then, we, and then she felt something, but she, she said, there's something wrong, and we said no. And then after 30 minutes, the, the training was over, and I said, you know, when, uh, when you felt something was wrong, was wrong, you know, there was a bomb somewhere. But anyway, it would not change anything, so we thought we continue the training. And this is how people here, I mean, we can't stop our lives. We have to continue, and, and it's nice. It's positive. The people are survivors. We had once a lady from California, actually. She came and she said, you were selected to live here because you are so strong. You have strong spirits that can overcome a lot of challenges. We would never be able to do it. Well, at least that's a nice spin on challenge. It's like the new spin on autism. We have the new spin on Lebanon. Okay, so why Rudolf Steiner? Who is he? What is he? Tell people, because not everyone's heard of him. Okay, Rudolf Steiner is a philosopher who started his philosophy way back in... I mean, the, the curative education, the courses that he wrote about special education were in 1924. So he wrote about who is the human being and why are we here and what do we do and what's the constitution, what's our physical body doing with our emotions, with our feelings, with our thoughts. And the main thing is in education, we don't only work on the intellect, we work on the will forces and on the feeling forces. And this is very important, that we, we let the child move a lot, feel a lot, to be able to think better. So the approach is we, we use a lot of arts in, in the classes, music, movement, storytelling, uh, painting. So a lot of artistic activities that would help the imbalance between the will and the intellect. So we work a lot on the feeling part, which will help a lot the, the, the person develop. And uh, we, there's, of course, a Steiner curriculum, a Waldorf curriculum, that goes also with the age, the developmental age of the child, that when he's young, he needs a lot of imagination. Let's say at 12, he needs more uh, things that are related to revolution because he's living his puberty. At uh, 17, he needs more comparative of what's happening in the world and how can I help and things like that. So there is a curriculum and the approach is very human and very natural. Also, we use a lot of natural material, wood, uh, plants, flowers, 
use, uh, uh, we don't use plastic, we eat also healthy. I mean, going back to the root of the human being. Uh, in the school in Lebanon, actually, I thought uh, in 2006, it hit me a little bit, that I thought if we were not a Steiner school, I don't know what would, would I, how can I do it with teachers? They don't have good salaries. There's a war. Uh, we, the students are difficult. What do I tell them? So then I have this Steiner philosophy where Rudolf Steiner wrote all his books in World War I. And I say, look, I'm sure World War I was more difficult. And it happened. And they did something. So we can do something. And the school will always stay. And we have to look deeper and more global on what we're doing and, and that our work will stay forever. So this, uh, this mission thing, devotion, human values of working with special needs did a great difference in the community here. That's really exciting. That's really exciting. You're listening to a new spin on Autism Answers. I'm Lynette Louisa, story teacher host, otherwise known as the Brain Broad, and we are here in Lebanon, in the beautiful mountains of Lebanon, at what I thought was FISTA, but apparently is stepped together, talking with Rim with the hard last name. Okay, forgive me, guys. You know I, I have a hard enough time with the English last names. So here we go. I, I want to, uh, before we go back to her, I want to remind you to stay to the end of the show where we will do stories from and okay, 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 the great guest giveaway. Okay, I sound like a real radio person. Now it's time to go back. Um, Rim, actually the question that comes to mind for me is twofold. So I have two sort of legs to this question. One is you have a multiple population kind of group, multiple ages, multiple population, but still segregated. So that's kind of interesting. So many people, they take autistic people and they put them in the autistic class or the autistic school. Um, and they take the cerebral palsy people and put them somewhere for cerebral palsy. And so we segregate a lot. And what you've done is you're segregated but you're integrated amongst the special challenges. So I thought it might be fun or informative to talk about how that experience is for you, how you find autism challenging in blending in with the other communities or useful or whatever, whatever your observations of that is. And then, and then how the heck do you get consistency from families to staff to, and then having this varied population with varied ages, it, it must be very challenging. So let's start with population. Yeah, population. Yeah. Uh, actually, in Steiner schools, in schools that follow curative education of Rudolf Steiner, uh, we don't segregate uh, uh, people in categories because it's very nice to have polarities. You know, the Down syndrome child who is so sociable and loving and he's doing everything with the autistic who's always rigid preparing things and fixing things, together, they're better than the teacher. It's amazing. I mean, at, uh, maybe in some phases of this school's history and evolution, we had some classes with only autistic, but I found the dynamic in the class, it's a pity because it's nice to have people who can talk more, who are more sociable, who, who are the opposite maybe. It's, it's an, a very big challenge to have them. In, in the curative education, we put them age-appropriate, I mean, we, I mean we, we use age-appropriate material, but we put them according to their chronological age, approximate, so let's say the class is between seven and nine, because this class, they will also grow together, and they will create this 
uh, group of um, uh, our students are helping a lot other students and here if we look at the situation in Lebanon with the economical crisis and with the parents who are not paying, we have classes of eight students and sometimes nine, and this is very challenging for the teachers. But you will be surprised how some students are helping other students in the classes, helping so, the teacher. Let me get this straight. So when you, it sounds like what you're doing is you're taking an age grouping, mm -hmm. like say maybe 20 to 20. 30, yeah. and then inside that you're trying to find the group of people that are functioning at a certain age and gathering them into a group so yes. that they're doing similar things, yes. but they have different diagnoses, so they're sort of filling out each other's deficits. Yes, and if you have two classes, let's say from seven to nine years of age, the one class is more advanced and the other class is less advanced, they take the, th the same themes Culturally, I mean the, the curriculum that we have. If they need to take Gilgamesh, well, they'll take Gilgamesh. If the, if Nobody knows what Gilgamesh is. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> uh, Egyptian civilization, okay. or you know, uh, you know, just things that the, the inventions of uh, history lessons, you know. So there's a curriculum. It's for all the students. And the way you adapt this curriculum, you have, let's say, the Egyptian civilization, you have it as a story. Some children will only listen to it as a story, or they might not even listen to the story. But then when we do the individual work, everybody will work depending on his case, his abilities, and his level of performance. Oh, okay. So this is the way we do it. We have general themes, and we have individualized instruction for every student. Sometimes some students need to be pulled out from the class to have more one-to-one -one sessions because mm -hmm. they can't tolerate the group. But other sessions like in, in music or in arts, they go back together. And in Steiner schools, that is really very interesting, that the special child stays in his class for eight years with the same teacher. Oh, that's awesome. So the <laughs> teacher, she knows everything about this child. It's amazing, you know? As long as it's a great teacher, of that's course, awesome. Of course. <laughs> of course. So, I mean, finding teachers for eight years is not very easy. I think it's, we, we didn't have a lot of teachers who were able to manage this. Usually it's four years or they move to another section or something like this. But four years is already a big step for them. Mm -hmm. And I think having a teacher uh, living with, also with the development of the child is just a wonderful thing. It relaxes her, it relaxes the child. Yeah, they feel a community, they live together, they move together in the classes and in the, in the skills that they're uh, developing. And she can prepare really uh, good adapted material for, for her students. And they don't have to much. introduce themselves and have the stress every single year go, oh, will this teacher like me? Will yeah. she see what I can do? And all of that, which is hard for all kids, especially mm -hmm. special ones. So let's get to that concept of mixing the autistic children in with the other ones. Where are the challenges in that? It is challenging because, you know, the other students, they sometimes can't tolerate the behavioral issues of the autistic child sometimes. But if you look at them in the classes, I had one person who came from England. He couldn't not film the session because he thought it was amazing what happened between how the teacher managed it and how the other students managed it. It's like uh, the, the dynamic, as I said, the dynamic of the group, if you can create it and be patient and do the right rhythms 
in the class, it makes it easier for everybody. So, even though how, with okay. the so how do you manage it? How do you create a kind of consistency with a varied population? And how do you extend that consistency to staff and parents? Okay, now or do you? <laughs> consistency with, with parents and teachers. Actually, we have every day one hour of training for the teachers. And on Friday, we have three hours. And they have one Saturday per month to come for training. And they have courses to take and to learn about many things that we don't stop giving them and we don't stop also us as trainers learn. We go to conferences of training of trainers, so we also discuss with internationally in other cultures what's happening with the new generation and how they're motivated about their work and things like that. So it's not very easy here in Lebanon because people got so used to being so chaotic and doing things and we don't have a government. Imagine you don't have rules, you don't have regulations. So I, I like that idea yeah, I a know. lot, actually. <laughs> I, I might have to stay. <laughs> some part, in some parts, it's nice. In other parts, well, you have to work on the consistency of people. I'll give you a small example. We have, we start the the day in the in the classes with an opening verse, and it's the Rudolf Steiner words: "The sun with loving light makes bright for me each day," and it's a very nice opening verse. It's just being positive to start the day. And uh, I told the teachers, well, you know, we start uh, an opening verse in all Steiner schools and it's translated to a hundred languages everywhere in the world. Uh, why don't you do it in your class to start in a positive way? And, and they did it, let's say we had the meeting on Friday, on Monday they did it, Tuesday a little bit. Wednesday, not anymore, Thursday, and then when we had another meeting, what happened to the opening verse? How did you feel it was? And they said, oh, we forgot. I stayed tracking this two months. It didn't work. Then I said, okay, now 7.20, you come a.m. <laughs> you come to my office, we do the opening verse between teachers and staff. And then we'll see how it goes. And my husband was laughing. You're going to open it first. I was running the opening verse. And I said, yes, I'm going. I stayed consistent one year. I think this is my German blood. <laughs> so I stayed consistent one year doing the opening verse consistently every day. At the end of the year, they said, why don't we do it with the students? And now it's part of the rhythm. It works perfectly well. And even if I'm here or I'm not here, the opening verse will happen. The student asked for it also. You know, it's neat. That brings to mind kind of the challenges we're having now as we're learning. It's challenging to learn all this neurofeedback stuff and how do you make the brainwaves do this and how do the machines work and what's the model that you do. And at the end of the day, everything I've ever learned that's created big changes in people's lives. Uh, the important piece was to stand there and prove it. Mm. And so if they were every day coming in the morning and doing that, one person after another eventually felt the change that was created by this ritual. Yeah. And it's hard to ask people to change if we're not going to first help them feel what it is that we want them to do. Of course. 
And this is what I always tell the teachers, uh, that I can't talk about human values and Rudolf Steiner and you're screaming in another class. It doesn't work. We have to work as a team. We have, when we do the training, just ask the, the questions, challenge me, tell me I don't like what you said or whatever. And then we, have, we need to have an agreement because we are a school. We're not individuals working everybody a different method. Or We have to agree. I, I'm open to, to many methods. It's not a problem. But I mean, we have to agree that we are here mainly for the development of the student. And whatever we find as solution or new technique that we will be using, we have to believe in it and give a lot from us. Because we have, as you, as you said, now the neurofeedback, I think if they don't start using it themselves mm -hmm. and feeling it themselves, it will never develop. Yeah, it's always from that. But there's something about having personal experience with something that makes you more committed to it. Sure, and I think some people are more determined than others. I don't of course. Know. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can look in the brain and find that, actually. <laughs> it's true. I don't know. Uh, for me personally, if I decide on something, I know I will do it. I don't decide on doing many things, but once I decide on doing something, I'll do it till the end. Some people, they don't have this, and they quit, and they need a lot of encouragement. Mm -hmm. They might eventually be doing it, and maybe better than me, but they need the process of really being convinced to do it. Okay, so this sounds lovely. One thing that I know is universally a challenge all over the world is for the educators in the schools and the parents to work as a team. And I, I wonder how you cope with that, how you try to encourage that, given that you have a culture that's got so many challenges in it already, and the people are already so stressed and their children are so ostracized. How do you try and create some kind of community that extends to home, and, and are you successful? Or is it still a big challenge? Just, just share with us. Actually, we, uh, we have a social worker, so whenever we have a new family, the social worker visits the house and tries to find a bit dynamic at home. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes when it's so challenging at home, the student, no matter what you do, will not improve. So, I mean, we try to give probation letters to parents, you're not cooperative, we're, we're trying to help you. If you need help, come and ask us, but you can't just stay passive, it's not going to work. You can't do the opposite of what we're doing if, you're telling, if we're telling you uh, uh, don't give him a lot of chocolate and you're giving him chocolate without telling us it's not helping you, it's not helping us. So of course we have a lot of challenges with parents and, and I know that it's not easy for parents. They're living this life and they have to deal with it every day. And they have other kids and the child is challenging and they're tired and especially the older ones. I can see the difference. You know, when they're young, they're so motivated motivated to change something and they're so excited and they come to all the meetings and they meet with all therapists when they when they're older i mean they still need help and i can't do it alone they have to help and they don't come yeah. So now we have a system lately, these two, three years, that, you know, we're willing to help parents who don't have money, who don't have possibilities to pay the, 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 the fees, the, 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 the therapy, who have a lot of difficulties. It's fine, but they have to be cooperative. This yeah. is our condition, and it's not easy. Yeah. Because yeah. sometimes 
you know, we had a mother, her father, the, the husband died, she has four children, she has two of them that are uh, autistic. She's depressed, completely depressed. And every time we meet her, she cries. Now we decided on a phone call once a week. And if she's cons consistent, we don't mind. We want to help her. But she has to, to give us a little bit so that we can cooperate. Right. It, you're right. It's just, it's all very difficult. So how do you, you know, I was just thinking now how you were, we were saying, you know, you managed to get that ritual in the morning done because you did it with the teachers and that extended and you were mentioning diet and you don't want the parents giving them for example say too much chocolate when they go home so I hear parents also have the same problem with schools where their child is on a gluten free diet or on some kind of dairy free diet or whatever it is so do you try to lead the way that way by being very cooperative what the parents want in diet so that you're at least showing your level of cooperation Yes, we do have uh, some uh, students here who are on gluten-free diets and we're very consistent with it and we encourage it. Uh, even some uh, students who are in the residential program, they have the nutritionist coming here and helping us find the right... Uh, we, we try as much as possible to do our own food healthy in general. So we try also to limit the things that might trigger, uh, like the gluten-free, we try not to use a lot of white uh, wheat or things like that. And we, we, we give a lot of vegetables and uh, fruits to the students. Um, the parents that are consistent, we are consistent with them for sure. The parents who are not consistent, then we, we have a lot of difficulty with it. And uh, we try to do, because here we have this uh, mentality of uh, pitying the special child and giving him, oh, because we, he's so sweet and he can't control it, let's give him some chips or something. Right, right. And they think they're, they're doing good, right. but they're not. right. So right. we have once a week where they get things, and sometimes it's too much. I said, we get something, okay, so that the school wouldn't be something like, not like the real world, you know. Right, right, right. <laughs> but uh, uh, sometimes it's the other extreme. And when they're in the residential program, this is also the guilt part of parents. When they go home, they give him them all the bad food that grandmother wants to prepare because he loves this cake or uh, or the, the neighbor who wants to give him you know and, and when he goes to, to also shops or supermarkets the people they, they, they give them for free you know ice cream or something like this so. you know it's really funny because um, my experience raising my kids and with most of the families that I know in the states have the opposite problem they're the ones trying to get the people at the school to believe that the diet has any bearing whatsoever and to get the people at the school to keep we that stuff switch. away. I was thinking, <laughs> but that's the beauty of my work of traveling all over the world is that every place I go, some of the elements of what it's like what you said about the down syndrome child next to the autistic yeah. child, the two sort of help it fill in each other's deficits. And if we would all just stop fighting with each other, stop with the friggin' wars and stop with the autistic communities, you know, anti-vaxxers and vaxxers and all these things, if we could just get together on this, we could get the best information to each other. It would be really nice. And then we could be consistent. Sure. Yeah, it would be nice. Okay, so this is your opportunity to sort of close the show with what you think is the most important thing to share about your school and or you or 
just how to work with the children that over the years you've gotten so much experience and I think you might have something really wonderful to say to parents that says, here, if you do this or if you think this or, or just something that from, comes from your heart that you think will make a difference in their lives. Okay, one of the most important things is just to look at the person as a human being. Because I can notice this when we have new teachers or new parents. I just look of how they, the, the nonverbal communication is. And this is the, one of my priorities, is how we respect and we, we show them that we care in our nonverbal communication, our posture, in our, the way we look at them, the way we, we receive them in the morning, the way they go home. All these things, I feel that they are so much important. The second thing is that uh, uh, it's also very important to not to judge. And unfortunately, with parents... Uh, and especially here in Lebanon, some parents go in and they say, oh, these children are like this. My son, their son is always better, or their daughter. Always. Right, right, okay, right. Okay, fine. Right. <laughs> and I said, what do you think if the mother of this child that you looked at, she, he, he also has a mother, and what do you think she would think if, you, if she hears what you say? I mean, just accept it. Accept everybody. Everybody is different. And the nature is different. Every flower is different. Every tree is different. They're, we are not similar. Even in normal life, normal people, if you want to call them normal. or I mean, we're different. And accepting without judging is very, very important. And I think it's the start with parents, with teachers, and with students. Actually, I love that point because I think very often when you're trying so hard to get your child accepted that you make the mistake of judging the other child to feel better about yours. And that was a beautiful point. So parents, I want you to really think about that. Rim, thank you so much for being here. Say your last name and the name of your school so I don't mess it up. Okay, Rim Mawad, Step Together Association. We have a Facebook and a and the website, you can just Google it and find it out. Well, go ahead and say how they so get a hold of you. www.steptogetherlb.org or the same, I think, for the Facebook, Step Together LB. Now, if I have an Arabic family that wants to claim a book, will you give one? And what was it? Sure. It's called The Different Child, Al-Walad Al-Mukhtalif. Okay. So. All right. So if you want to read an Arabic version of The Different Child by Rim, then you can go ahead and send me an email at mom4evermore at juno, J-U-N-O dot com. And in the subject line, you say, I can read Arabic. And the first person to give me, actually, I'm pretty sure there'll only be one. If anybody asks, then we'll make sure you get that book. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. All right, that was Rim from FISTA with Step Together. That was really exciting. I, I love it when the people that I'm working with are willing to let me record them. It's very cool. Um, and you got blessed by not only am I going to give you a story from the road, but you got a show from the road. So that pro practically qualifies as a story from the road. Okay, okay, okay. As far as the great guest giveaway, I just gave it away. So I don't have to give away anything of mine. I'm happy to, though. I love sharing my stuff. So let's 
let me see. Let's do a CD. If you want my one-woman show musical comedy about going from crazy to sane, go ahead and also send me an email at mum4evermore at juno, J-U-N-O dot com. And in the subject line, you can put crazy to sane. And uh, it's got music and comedy and stories, and you'll get a sense of who I've been and who I am now. And all right, let's get ready for stories from the road. Let's go ahead and tell a story about what happened last night. It was really cute. I was here at the camp, uh, the camp slash school, residential place, the combination of all populations and all ages. It was really fun. And I was sitting there trying to get on the Wi-Fi and do some homework and not really getting it done because, you know, I am doing my PhD and I do have homework and it seems like life is full of work and homework and learning never ends. And that's probably a good thing because it keeps your brain growing. But anyway, so I was sitting there and I was trying to do it and a boy sat down beside me. And he's, I shouldn't say boy, he's a man. And he sat down and he said, I'm a simple man. And I said, that's nice. And he said, I, I, I like you, lady. And I said, that's nice. I like you, too. And it's lovely to meet you. And so he started in his ritualistic talking. And he is going with his scripts and telling me his name is Alex and that he's a policeman and that he's a daddy. And everybody kept trying to get him to not talk to me so that I could get my work done. And all the people around me were... Uh, you know, trying to reach in and, and get him to leave, and he's yelling, shut up, leave me alone, stop, I'm ugly, putting his head down. Here's why I think it's a really neat story from the road. It's because it's kind of evidence of the beauty of this place. One of the things that I often teach is when to, it's timing. Everything in life is kind of like timing, you know, when you're, when you're trying to tell a joke, you have to get your timing right. One person will tell a joke and it's really funny and another person says all the same words and it's just boring and it falls dead. And that's all about timing. Well, working with somebody, with, with your husband, with your child, with your neighbor is also about timing. And this is especially true when somebody has sort of issues with feeling like they're out of control or they can't get the attention they want or they have communication problems or any of the diagnostic criteria that might show up in this lovely place. And so this young man was really trying to have a conversation with me and flirt a little and get me to allow him to put his hand on the back of my head so he could cradle my head in his hand. And he had all these things he wanted to do and he wanted me to go off with him in private. And he's a man, you know, <laughs> he's a man wanting to meet a woman and probably doesn't care that I'm really old. So it was really lovely and sweet. And all the people that work in this place were really amazing they didn't, at first they said, come on, let's go. But when he was so adamant that he wasn't ready to go and they saw I was comfortable and they saw he wasn't doing anything uncomfortable to me or any of that, they didn't continue to try to push their way and, and make sure that he did what they wanted. They didn't let their desire to make something happen get in the way of their observation of the timing required and the care and the love that had to be given and the space that had to be given. So they sort of stepped away and pulled away and his anxiety went down a little and he chatted with me a little more and he was very script oriented and very determined I should put my head in his hand. and. But, it's, you know, they, they moved forward and they moved back and they moved forward and they moved back slowly, massaging his awareness that he would have to leave 
Nobody was judging him. It wasn't bad, but, you know, it was necessary for him to go and eat his meal and, and leave my side. They didn't spend a lot of time apologizing to me and explaining to me. They didn't know who I am. Um, and yet the way that they handled it was, I would have to say, perfect. So uh, go back and listen to this again, play again, and listen to everything Rim said, because she really has built a lovely place full of um, great things that we could learn from. So I'm Lynette Louise. This is a new spit on Autism Answers. And that was Stories from the Road. I hope you got something from it. Remember, I'm also known as the Brain Broad, and thank you for being here, because without you, I'd just be talking to myself. Thank you for joining the show today. Lynette is the author of the refreshingly honest and at times hilarious new book, Miracles Are Made, A Real-Life Guide to Autism. You can purchase this and other materials by looking on the webtalkradio.net website and clicking on the covers. You can also click through to her Facebook page and check out any show you may have missed by looking in the archives. We'll see you soon for another edition of a new spin on autism. Answers. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. I can't hear.